Toward the end of this month, we will be celebrating the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul the Apostle. According to Acts, Paul was on his way to Damascus to eradicate the followers of Jesus when he was knocked off his horse by a bright light and a voice, the voice of Jesus, that asked, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a famous scene made familiar by artists like Caravaggio and Rubens, Frangelico, Peter Bruegel the Elder, Michelangelo, who all painted it. But famous in literature, too, not least because the American philosopher and psychologist William James wrote about it in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and suggested that Paul was knocked off his horse because he had suffered an attack of epilepsy. But I'm afraid I am getting ahead of myself. This is not the feast of the conversion of Paul, but the solemnity of the Epiphany. I've begun with the story of Paul because, though we may not know it, there is a direct connection between these two liturgical events 19 days apart. As Acts tells it, Paul's conversion is a story about a family squabble, an argument among Jews concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Was he or was he not Israel's long-awaited Messiah? The story of Christ's birth in Bethlehem 35 to 40 years earlier, before, before Paul fell off his horse, has this in common. It is also a Jewish story. All the participants in that story, as told to us by St. Matthew and St. Luke, are also Jewish. The Virgin Mary and St. Joseph, of course, but also the shepherds and the innkeeper who turned them away. The ox and the ass were not Jewish, obviously, but their owners must have been. I, I think we all get the point. Like the story of Paul's conversion in Acts, all the people in the Nativity story were Jewish, with three exceptions. The three wise men, or magi. St. Matthew doesn't say who they are or even how many they were. Tradition says there were three, and it was a ninth-century Italian manuscript that tells us their names were Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. The idea that they were kings comes from the Church's Lexio Divina on the mystery of the Incarnation. Psalm 72, the kings of Tarshish and the Isles shall offer gifts. The kings of Arabia and Sheba shall bring presents. And Isaiah 60, caravans of camels shall fill you all. From Sheba shall come bearing gold and frankincense. In a culture like ours, which prizes tolerance and diversity and fears its opposite, intolerance and prejudice, texts like these should make us sit up and take notice. These texts and others like them from the prophetic books are making claims about the people of the covenant that no one, especially on a college campus today, would get away with making. They are telegraphing Israel's claim to be the exclusive and only people of the one true God, chosen to receive the revelation of his law. Even more offensive, the Old Testament is saying, without embarrassment or hesitation, that among all human beings on the face of the earth at any one time in history, Israel alone is God's true humanity. She alone is salt and light to the world. But salt and light exist to be shared. So the prophets looked 
ahead to a time when the pagan nations will stream to the temple in Jerusalem in order to worship the one God. And this means that they too will have a part in the covenant blessings formerly reserved to Israel alone. That was what was supposed to happen when the Messiah came. It was a beautiful vision. Unfortunately, geography and politics stepped in and ruined everything. Israel sat on a narrow strip of real estate between, along, between the Mediterranean Sea to the east and the desert to the west, and to the north and south, the superpowers of the day, Egypt and variously the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, eventually the Greeks, and finally the Romans. Every 50 years or so, one of these empires marched their armies through Israel in order to attack the other. The Jewish people became the pawn in a long game of geopolitical brinkmanship. Everyone who's ever cooked a meal is familiar with the old saying, once burned, twice shy. It means when you've had a bad or an unpleasant experience, you are much more careful to avoid a similar experience in the future. And over the course of time, most especially with the persecution of the Jews by the Greek-speaking Seleucid Empire 300 years before the birth of Christ, and then the Roman occupation beginning in 63 BC, it became fashionable to imagine that when the Messiah came, he would lead a revolt to drive out the pagans, not to welcome them in. Based on this history, we should be asking ourselves why St. Paul would claim to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and what were these Gentile stargazers who were completely ignorant of the true God, what were they doing at Bethlehem? This is where our two feasts find their theological connection. Epiphany hints at the great ingathering of the Gentiles prophesied in Isaiah 60 and in other texts, and the conversion of St. Paul turned that hint into a fact as Paul goes on to become the apostle of the Gentiles. This is the astounding news of the Epiphany, that this baby sought by the Magi were, was born to save not just the people of the covenant, but those who are not the chosen, those who are not the beloved, those who are not the initiated, not deserving, as the Gentiles, we and our ancestors, and were, were. That the eternal Logos became flesh and revealed himself not only to the Jewish people, but to the pagan nations in the person of the wise men from the East says something very different, something very optimistic and hopeful about God and human beings. That when God took human flesh, human nature was changed and restored from the inside out. As St. Augustine put it memorably, and in particularly as a Gentile himself, because he loved us, Jew and Gentile alike, he made us lovable.